Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Curiosity Killed the Rat. Today we are in our second part of our very special Pint of Science special. Um, I am Matt. I am not a scientist, but I love science. I love learning about science. I love all things science. Um, I am also, of course, joined by my lovely co-host, Kate. Sup, guys? Yeah, I am, I guess, the normal scientist of this show, but today I am not the scientist as the same as last week. I am not the key scientist that we are going to because we have been lucky enough to be paired with the lovely Pint of Science crew. So if you haven't heard of Pint of Science, it's this awesome festival that normally happens live in person in in, in those first, you know, that first weekend or so of May um, where scientists go to pubs and share their research you know, talk about their stuff. As we are well aware, <clears throat> pubs are not a thing right now. We're in the middle of a bit of a <laughs> cough on cough crisis pandemic. Thing. I mean, if you're going to cough, make sure to, you know, cover your mouth at least <coughs> afterwards. Coughing into my <laughs> elbow. I know you guys can't see the Zoom call that Matt, Luke and I are in, but <laughs> I'm coughing into my elbow. Point of science. Um, yeah, so we are lucky enough that Pint of Science has gone online this year, and we are lucky enough to be joined by our second of three guests today, um, who I will introduce in a quick second. But I just want to quickly say, if you want to find more of the Pint of Science stuff, um, a lot of the stuff's been put online this year already. You can follow the hashtag PintAUOnline on Twitter. Twitter, for example, or you can follow at Pint of Science AU or, or whatever country you're from. If you happen to not be in Australia, just, you know, Google your local Pint of Science, see what they've chucked online this year. But yeah, like I said, I'm Kate. I'm I'm an addiction neuroscientist by, you know, by origin. But but luckily enough, we have a guest here today. It's super exciting. We have Luke Wiley, who is a researcher at Murdoch University. Luke, how are you? So excited to have you here today. Yeah, good morning, Chris. Great to be here. It's great to thank you for, very much for having me on and uh, looking forward to, to chatting about the science over the next hour or so. Yeah, no, like super, super keen for this episode. So as I understand it, I mean, you've already been part of one of the, the Pint of Science um, activities online this year. And if people want to hear more about your stuff, they can just, you know, chuck in brain health in our modern world, chuck that into YouTube and you'll you'll find the panel discussion. But um, super exciting for you to, you know, rock up and, and chat to us today. What what are you going to be talking to us about today? What What is your area in, in the great big world of science? science? <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, I'm based, um, I say, at Murdoch and uh, we're a part of a new centre which was set up last year um, called the Australian National Phenome Centre. And here we perform a, a type of technology called phenotyping, um, where we actually try to measure all the chemicals that may be uh, in someone's blood or urine and, and what's kind of going on in their metabolism at any one point in time. And as part of that, we can do some pretty cool stuff where we try and track these patterns and how they change and just try and find out what, what causes disease and what causes people to to age healthily or d develop um, dementia as, as they get older. So Matt, 
I'm going to turn to you right now because like I understood a lot of those words, but I know you, you come in here same, same as a lot of our listeners. You, you come into this discussion with, with less of a science education. Do you know what a phenome is as opposed to a genome as opposed to a, do you, what questions do you have with that in particular, you know, introductory statement that Luke has? I don't know. The only real gnomes I'm familiar with are the ones that sit outside of gardens, and even then I'm not quite sure what their purpose is. I think it's to scare off birds or something. But I don't know. What I what I understood from that, I, I understand that you can, you know, check blood for things <laughs> and be able to find things wrong with that. Um I know what the genome is, um, I think. I understand that it's the way that we have um, so- something to do with how we've sequenced our DNA and being able to find stuff within the DNA, but I know bugger else more than that. As I've said in the past, biology is definitely my weakest point when it comes to science. Um so yeah, no, I don't fully know. <laughs> so Luke, do you want to break us break it down for you know the lay people among our audience? First of all, at the most the most basic sort of level, you know, what what does phenotyping mean? What is a f- like you know phenome versus genome versus you know what what are these nomi words? Um, very very basic question, but you know, just give us the elevator yeah. pitch. Yeah, sure. So um, we we inherit our DNA and we we can't do anything about that we inherit that from our parents um, and that is our genetic code and every person has a very unique um, genetic code inside our inside our DNA and the study of of that for an individual is called our our genome or our genomics and with people studying what each bit of that code actually means in in real terms so we might inherit it but whether it changes the color of our eyes or um our height it's all wrapped in sort of um uh, that that code and it's in untangling that and that is the study of genetics and genomics and then the next um step on is just because it's it's written in the code doesn't necessarily mean it's been activated so when we're reading that um that code we have what, and it's actually transcribed. So then we have something called transcriptomics. And the amount of reading that happens of that code and actually what's done with that code changes from person to person as well and changes on on their environment. So if we're under stress, perhaps we might read a bit more of that code and then express something from that code. So the study of that section of our ohm if we like is our transcriptome and then downstream of that how much of those is actually turned into something like uh, useful for a biological process and those bits of code are turned into proteins and enzymes and uh, other other um, biological aspects that actually do a job inside the body and just because you've got the code for that doesn't necessarily mean you'll produce that specific protein to do a job okay so that what we would call the proteome and then right at the bottom of that is if we were to say eat something or take a a drug or be exposed to something in our environment we sort of are always being exposed to chemicals uh, whether it be sugars or um, uh, fats or lipids and they get processed by the body and uh, is part of what's called our, our metabolism. So we study all of those chemicals and then we call that the metabolome. Okay. So 
these omic sciences are very um, ring-fenced, but together, the output of that makes you who you are. So you might have the genetic code, but you also have the environmental influences, you have your diet influences, whether you smoke, whether you drink, whether you do exercise, and all of that combined produces who you are and what you do, um, and it may affect your uh, um, personality, it may affect your appearance, but that output is a person's phenotype, whether they are living healthily, whether they have a disease, um, and then that combination of things together, we can start to spot patterns in it. So maybe one group of people develop a specific disease, but another group of people don't develop that disease. And right. it's that study of trying to find out why people develop disease. Is it their genes? Mm -hmm. Is it what they're doing in their lives? Or is it actually a sort of a combination of the of the two that does that nature versus nurture, but in the most scientific sense. Exactly. Exactly that. Yeah. So the science of the, uh, own the science of the gnomes and the ohms is the science of, um, just trying to figure out people and person cells and everything that makes a person, a person from what they were born with to what influences them later in life. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And it's these little influences that change over time that, are likely to uh, contribute to disease. It may not just be one event that happens, but maybe it's a thousand events happening that just happen to trigger someone's genetic code. And those little changes over time eventually build up and then may result in someone developing a specific disease. Right. So my question is, like, that's, that's a lot of different factors right that i'm hearing could possibly influence someone's you know phenotype right you've got your genes you've got your environment but even you know you break down your environment you've got your you know physical environment you've got your mental emotional environment you've got all sorts of factors in play how the fuck <laughs> do, does <laughs> one go about you know, measuring all of the different factors, you know, controlling for all of these different factors and then somehow reaching a conclusion about which factors are most important in developing some sort of illness. Like from, from what I understand, you, you focus mostly on neurodegenerative disorders, such as like, you know, different yeah. dementias, like Alzheimer's, for example. Um, but just, just, just very generally speaking, how does one design an experiment that controls for like, every single different life situation that an individual can come across in their life, right? Like everyone's lives and their stories are different when you break down person by person. Like how does one build a study around that? How do you that? narrow down the variables? Yeah. yeah that's, it's a good question. And, it's a big question, uh, I know, right? <laughs> the, yeah, the answer is with, with a lot of difficulty. Yeah. And we're still learning the best ways to do that. Um one of the ways we can do it is by sheer numbers of people. Mm -hmm. If we can get thousands and thousands of, of data sets, we can actually then start to find really subtle changes that if you only have 10 people, you can't control for the variation between, between them because every person is, is so very different. And there is a, a certain amount of um, variation because like you say, some people may um, wake up at 5am and go for a run. 
but some people may not exercise ever. So how do you control the from difference that? In a, between in a small Matt pop- and I? <laughs> Excuse you. <laughs> Only because it's true. <laughs> cough, cough. <laughs> so if we were studying the three of us here, there'd be a lot of variation there mm. from a lot of extremes. But if you turn that into um, 10,000 people, you can start to sort of subgroup and control for that variation just through sheer weight of data. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the changes that you do see, you can start to um, have more um, confidence that actually it's due to a disease rather than just that person's the interperson variation that, that's naturally happening. So the bigger your test groups, the better you're able to... Um, you're able to more easily point to the genetic factor rather than necessarily the Indian parent, the independent variables of each person's circumstances. Exactly. It's almost like you you dilute. You have so many people that you dilute that that variation out of your yeah. your analysis. I potentially have a very controversial question to chuck in here, but at what point? do you get concerned that your sample is so big that you're showing patterns that aren't necessarily there? You know, like that classic, uh, you know, internet comic that every other scientist listening to this has probably seen at one point in their lives where, you know, it shows that, oh, look, green M&Ms are significant because we, you know, we found them after this many tests. Um, At what point do you decide the balance between, like, you know, this is actually a representative sample or, th- or this is the sample of people that's going to show the result that I, cough, cough, want it to show. Yeah, we have to be very careful with that. So mm-hmm. um, in the in the area, we would call models that show that overfitting mm-hmm. in as much as you've looked so many times through the data until you find something. And then mm-hmm. you, think, you, you think, yeah, I found something and actually you haven't because if you look hard enough for something you can kind of yeah. force yourself down down that route so we employed a number of statistical tests that control for that um and there are there's been a lot of work done historically in this to try and avoid that scenario where you you stumble across things by chance if you test enough things eventually one thing will become significant so we actually can put some tests into our analysis that that prevent that from happening. So this is kind of almost a like follow-up slash reiteration of of the previous, you know, Pine of Science panel, panel post, panel, uh, show that you you did that people you know like I said can can look up if they want more detail um for but from that what I gathered is that is that your research you know specifically like dementia Alzheimer's and I kind of want to ask a question around that and and what from my understanding you're looking at you know those complicated complex relationships between you know our genes but also our environment like Matt said nature versus nurture in terms of Alzheimer's and I'm I'm just wondering like how how exactly do you do you measure this because obviously if someone's already been you know diagnosed with alzheimer's you can't really i mean maybe can you study them are they are they of any use or can you be sure that what you're studying is is an effective alzheimer's versus an effective maybe the treatment they've already been put on like how how do you actually learn these things about these diseases that, you know, there's all these other complicated factors in terms of, you know, these people have been 
treated by things or, you know, maybe the, the healthy population that you're looking at never develops Alzheimer's or, or dementia. How, how do you work with these samples and turn it into something meaningful, I guess, is my question. Sure. And it's, uh, it, it is a real, um, it is a real challenge. Um, mm. So if we go back a couple of steps mm-hmm. um, to sort of explain, I guess, to the listeners, sort of like the bigger challenge here is that when we come to, if we talk specifically about Alzheimer's disease, the biggest risk factor that we know at the moment of what we actually know is is age. So the older you are, the more chance you have of, of developing Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. And the next thing that we know is that there are specific bits of our genetic code in our genes that people could inherit that could increase the chance. So it's it's not a genetic disease as such. If you have that gene, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, to complicate matters a little bit, there, there is a form of Alzheimer's disease that is specifically a um, genetic disease that if oh. you inherit the gene, you can uh, you will develop the disease. That um, typically is quite an aggressive form of, of Alzheimer's disease and um, symptoms start to develop um, when people are, let's say, middle-aged, so in their 50s, early 50s. I'm going to um, just interject so with, a, with a real sure. quick question. Is is there a way to test for this? Do you, do you, is there a way that people can find out if they're, you know, if they have this gene for this, this early onset? Alzheimer's is so or do you have to kind of just wait and see till you get it no so so early onset um Alzheimer's disease is is very well um established as the as the cause for that the Mm -hmm. gene is known and um people uh do get tests for it but it's a very um clear family history so Mm -hmm. that is um will be well known to families who are um affected by that yeah and um there is a, a, a and then there's um opportunities for for people in those families to be tested um and it's up to the individual whether they then want to have testing because then there are are questions raised about that whether you know would you like to know if you have the that you've inherited the gene or mm. not and that's a very oh that becomes a whole decision. big ethical debate right you could make a whole matrix Indeed. style movie on whether or gattaca gattaca is probably a better scenario gattaca. of, well, yeah, of that's all gene based <laughs> yeah do you need to know should you know do you want to know mm. oh I don't know. That's a whole. And, that's a whole philosophical debate that we probably shouldn't waste a whole episode talking about. <laughs> that, so yeah. So the picture is a bit complicated because there is this subtype of Alzheimer's disease that that, mm. that uh, is genetic. But if we refer to sort of the the Alzheimer's disease that is in the press and people are more familiar with, um, is sort of the biggest risk factor is is age. The older you get, the more chance you have of of developing it. Mm-hmm. But there are some genetic uh, links to that. However, what we don't know is why some people with that genetic risk will develop disease and some people won't. So in this situation, there are, okay, if you carry that gene, you'll have a slight increase of Mm. chance of developing the disease, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it. It's not a certainty. It's more a exactly. predisposition. So there are a lot of people who have this gene in them, but it's never been activated. So they don't actually end up um, uh, contracting the disease in their lifetime. Exactly. And it's a very subtle 
gene because it's not the full gene that you inherit. So if you think of the genetics as a really, really long piece of code, the risk is only one of those. Uh, and the code's made up of what we call bases. There's four of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, so if you think of the number of combinations you could get with, um, with four bases all in different orders, it, it, gets, it can be a really complicated piece of code. And some of these um, mutations are a single letter in this code. So mm. we call it a single um, nucleotide polymorphism Snips. or a SNP, an yeah. SNP, SNP. So it's just one little block or one letter in that code. But that can have mm. a huge effect. Yeah, it can have a huge outcome. Yeah. And SNPs happen all the time. So mm. the code can go wrong. But it's every so often that SNP, that mutation, results in an actual um, change Right. in the person's phenotype if we go back to the, the earlier in the episode mm. so um what we don't what, so we and we know what these snips are there's been analysis done there's been work done in massive studies across the world and um analyzing the chance of these snips and how they affect disease but what we don't know is just because you have this snip why does that mean you're more likely to develop alzheimer's disease versus someone mm. who doesn't have that particular snip so right. can people who don't have these SNPs still develop Alzheimer's? Yes. So oh, well, that's, that's just... That's yeah. Just <laughs> so um, just because you don't have the SNP doesn't mean you're going to um, develop it. But there are also protective um, genes. Mm, that was going to be my next question. Like what can people do? Like what protective factors have, you know, maybe you or just, you know, anyone in the world in this area like has, has been uncovered in terms of like people listening to our show being like, oh boy, Alzheimer's disease doesn't sound fun, which you're like, you're right, it doesn't sound fun. Uh, <laughs> well, like what what do we know? What like, you know, quote unquote advice, you know, what, what has the science shown so far in terms of protective factors? So some people um, in, in their genetic code will have some of these mutations that are actually protective and people who carry these mutations have a lower chance of developing the disease. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not really understood why that is. And there's a particular uh, gene which codes for a, a protein, and it's called APOE, and it stands for apolipoprotein E. So it's a very mm-hmm. complicated word, but it's um, a, a protein, or sorry, it's a yes, yeah, a protein structure, but it's got uh, it's involved with all sorts of metabolites because there's fats and lipids yeah. and proteins all making this big protein and there's different subtypes of that apoe so there's apoe 2 3 and 4 people who carry apoe 2 are less likely to develop the disease and people who carry apoe 4 are more likely to develop the disease interesting but there's a lot of work going on at the moment as to to why that is so even though we've spotted that pattern and there've been lots of studies that have shown that it's actually not really apparent or the mechanism of that haven't really been understood as like, why exactly do those carriers have that, that effect? And then what about non-genomic factors? So purely environmental factors, like we know, obviously everyone sort of, or, you know, I'm not going to say everyone, but the, the majority of people kind of have the association of dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, th- those are, 
quote unquote, old age diseases, right? So we know that age is a risk factor, but like what other environmental factors um, play into increasing someone's risk of developing these neurodegenerative disorders? Yeah. So that again, there's been quite a lot of work in, in the area trying to figure this, this out. And um, apart from age, there haven't really been any huge, okay, if you do this, you're definitely going to develop um, Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. But there are some things that have been spotted and, and um, documented. Um, so there's a lot of work currently going on into cardiovascular health. So mm-hmm. um, high blood pressure and um, obesity, diabetes are now sort of listed as risk factors. But again, just because... Um, maybe a person has been diagnosed with diabetes or high blood pressure still doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go on to develop Alzheimer's disease, mm. but perhaps there's a higher chance. Yeah. And one of the challenges that we have to kind of sift through is that we have to kind of group people because maybe they are carrying the genes that are high risk, but they're living mm. a very low risk lifestyle. So if you just look Mm. at, let's say, activity, then maybe you can't spot the pattern. But then if you break the pattern down into subgroups, so then you start looking at their genetics as well Mm. and their lifestyle, then Mm. perhaps then you can start to spot real patterns. I've I've just got a a question regarding... um, Because I know now we're able to fully sequence a person's genome, right? I know a lot of, um, you know, places do it to find out, you know, ancestry and and that kind of thing. Um, Spotting things like the um, gene that is associated with Alzheimer's or these other SNPs that are protective um, against Alzheimer's, um, when you conduct tests into genes, do you need to be specifically looking for them to find them? Or if you were to just do a generic genome test or whatever is it able to spot it within that that full genome or do you have to be specifically looking for it to find it in a person's genome you you can do both so um you can fully sequence mm-hmm. which uh takes a lot more time and um because the code's huge yeah or you can look for specific snips right and be okay. more targeted um a lot of the um work would be um looking for specific SNPs because um, it, it's cheaper. Uh, you get smaller data sets, which are easier to handle. Um, full genome sequencing is is a really huge task, even com- uh, like uh, computation power to sift through mm. that whole genetic code yeah. is huge. Oh, because so, it's just that, yeah. that massive. So people tend to, to target specific SNPs because it's much easier to mm. work with. Um, okay. And then known SNPs are then associated with disease and then people tend to focus down that that path. Right. Okay. So I kind of have one, I don't know, final question, loaded question. The question that you're almost certainly sick of hearing as a scientist because we're all sick of hearing as a scientist. But for our listeners out there, you know, who maybe maybe our younger listener-based Gen Zers that are here for the memes, um, that are kind of like, you know what? I don't have Alzheimer's. I'm not going to get Alzheimer's for a good long while. You know, like to people maybe, you know, who don't directly have Alzheimer's disease or know someone with Alzheimer's disease, like, or, or you know, why is why is this method of, of researching stuff, like, 
why is this important? Yeah, sure. No, it's a, it's a good question. So um, the challenge with Alzheimer's disease and, and to an extent um, sort of diseases that affect the brain is the brain's a very hard tissue to, to access and, and to treat. There's, mm. it, it's locations very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously it's, it's a very, very important organ in our, in our, in our body. So, and in addition to that, there's difficulties to get drugs into the brain because we have something called a blood brain barrier, which is the interface mm. between our brain and our blood. So it's actually very, very challenging to get mm. drugs into the brain. So it, it's a very challenging disease, uh, to study for, for treatment purposes, Okay, so um, there is a lot of really great work going on in that area, but it's 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 um, and there are um, advances being made, and there is hope, but it's it's very very challenging. Now, the other thing that's a very a, a massive challenge in Alzheimer's disease is actually how do we diagnose it? So at the moment, um, diagnosis happens um, when people start to experience um, uh, challenges um, and almost self-raise them. And either their family members may raise changes in behavior mm-hmm. uh, or an individual may notice changes in their behavior and memory. And then they'll go and see a doctor and a clinician and um, they'll get a, an official diagnosis. But at the moment, it's very yeah. much based on the clinician's opinion and uh there's a there are a number of tests you can do but it's more of like uh um an examination as in they'll ask you some questions and ask you to recall things and ask you to Mm. do some uh perhaps a drawing challenge um and there are so the diagnosis is currently done in quite a subjective manner Mm -hmm. which means diagnosis actually happens quite uh late into the disease development Mm. what scientists currently think at the moment is that the initial mechanisms to the disease probably start about 20 years before the first symptoms start to be apparent oh man so actually when the symptoms start to show the disease is pretty well established and it, it and it could be very challenging to to treat this so if we can spot um, any patterns uh, in lifestyle and genetics and environment, there's a number of real big advantages to that. First, maybe we can come up with like a diagnostic test that can diagnose um, a lot earlier. And if mm. we can diagnose it earlier, perhaps we can intervene earlier. Yeah. And also perhaps then we could recommend, say there's a lifestyle uh, event that we think, okay, that really increases someone's chance of getting the disease. Perhaps then we can start to advise and say, look, if you change that lifestyle, then you can delay the onset of this disease. And because Alzheimer's disease is a a disease that's associated with aging, it's not necessarily about uh, finding a treatment that can cure it. But if we can find a treatment or an intervention that can delay it by 15 or 20 years, Mm. then perhaps we can then push it to a point where it actually doesn't uh, impact person's life that much because if they're if currently someone's developing it at 70 if we can push that back to 90 that's a that's a real yeah uh good extension um and then uh, obviously the risk at 90 other diseases may be playing a part as well so there's mm. a lot of interacting uh benefits to really finding out what causes the disease um and if we can actually intervene at an earlier point to to, to delay that disease 
kind of like when we learned that smoking cigarettes led to lung cancer and stuff yeah. like that. Scientists could start could start advising people to stop smoking because they can it leads to that. Exactly that, exactly that. And there may be um, some environmental factors, there may be lifestyle factors, and it may be a combination. It's a lot more, I would think, it's very likely that it's a combination of everything that, that we do. Yeah, mm. a nice little balance between everything. Yeah. I think that, I think unless, Luke, you know, I'm going to give you, a, you know, final shot, final 10 seconds of fame. No, I'm, I'm sure you'll have lots more seconds of fame <laughs> yeah, in your life. Yeah, anything more about um, what you wanted to talk about that you wanted to get out there that we haven't, uh, haven't gotten around to asking you? Now's the time to shoot your um, shot. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, I mean, like, often the, the question is like, what, what can we do? What can we change in our, in our current mm. lifestyle to, to prevent dementia and Alzheimer's and mm. I think it's important at the moment is that there isn't enough scientific evidence out there to to make that advice and there might be plenty of blogs and and um, reports online but just don't read everything and don't sort of worry too much at the moment about and there's no need for mm. genetic testing and everyone to yeah. go out and start requesting and panicking about genes because we just don't know enough about it at the moment and that's the that's exactly the work we're trying to do and trying to find out what what causes it and yeah. hopefully in time there'll be there'll be concrete advice of um of how to to slow the 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 progression of diseases such as alzheimer's so yeah um, yeah because I'm always asked, like, mm. what what can we do now? And at the moment, they're just the, the the basic advice you get from from the charities and from experts in the field is is try and live a healthy life, like other diseases, eat well, exercise well, don't smoke, don't drink too much. It's it's the usual kind yeah. of advice mm-hmm. at the moment until we can find some concrete um, evidence to say different. Amazing. Yeah, there you go. Thank you so much, Luke, for, you know, sharing your time, coming on our podcast and, you Thank know, you. doing not your first but your second pint of science, kind of, you know, talking about your your stuff um, for the crew. Really appreciate it. And, guys, if you, if you really liked what Luke had to say, you want to find out more, you can follow him on Twitter at underscore Luke Wiley. Uh, we will share the handle in our description of this podcast and also on our social media um, but like I said, you know, he's at Murdoch University, follow them. The Parent Institute is also another institute that you can you can find on Twitter if you if you're really interested in this sort of research. Um and like I said, you can you can Google on YouTube, uh look up on YouTube the Brain Health in Our Modern World panel discussion that Pint of Science held. Um but I think you know that that right rinds us up rounds us up winds <laughs> us up wine slash round it turns into rind i'm rinds. thinking it, i don't know i'm no i'm thinking Wounds cheese rinds of cheese i don't know i bought this oh, really yeah, nice yeah. like triple brie cheese from the supermarket yesterday oh, not yeah. the point but i'm thinking about cheese now uh no that <laughs> that winds up our second out of three pint of science episodes for this podcast if you love our podcast as usual you can find us on twitter at curiosity rat um or on instagram at curiosity rat or on facebook you can find the page curiosity killed the rat um, in future episodes and as as normal episodes, we have our listener questions. So if you've got any question about anything science related that you want me to try tackle in a future episode, chuck us an email at uh, curiosityrat at gmail.com. But in general, you know, thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. You know, if you have any more yeah. quiz thank questions. Thank you again, Luke, for coming on. 
appreciate yeah, thanks it. Thanks for having me. It's been, it's been great, yeah. And thank you for yeah, playing thanks of very much. And, you know, catch you all next week. Curiosity. Kill the rat. Kill the rat. Kill the rat.